0: Let's turn our Bibles to Leviticus 23, verses 26 through 32. Let's get right on into it. Okay, and and I want to read it for us real quick. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, As also the 10th day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement, it shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And yet, you shall do no work on the same days, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in, uh, afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And my and any person who does any work on the same day, that person will. Destroy. I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the uh, month at evening. uh, From evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. And so this is the sixth uh, um, feast, as I said, This is, as the Bible describes it, a holy convocation. This is an appointed, set-aside time that God had for the nation of Israel. Now look, the whole reason that we have been doing these feasts is for us to see what God was telling His people back in the Old Testament and what it was even speaking, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we could take this uh, piece of scripture here, this, this this group of scriptures, and we can see how it's going to even apply to our lives today. And I don't think it does. I don't think we have to be uh, magicians to do this. The last few weeks of Brother Richard last week, and Brother Jake the two weeks before that of trying to figure out what God was doing. I think it's. I think it becomes pretty clear and pretty evident. Uh, for us to be able to see what God is trying to tell us. And so as we're going to be looking at God's Word this morning, we want to make sure we see it very clear. We see the evidence of God all the way from the beginning of Scripture all the way till now that God knew what He was doing. God had a plan. He was up to something. On this sixth feast, this is the, the second feast in the fall season. This had everything to do with, the, with Israel's calendar. Israel's calendar was a little different than our calendar. Uh, I've tried to do a little bit of, uh, of study and research when it comes to the, uh, their uh, past calendar versus our calendar that we're familiar with today. Uh, uh, their calendar was basically a, a, like a equivalent to our uh, calendar in 10 months versus our 12 months. And for them, it was the it was the 10th day of that seventh month is what it tells us here in Scripture. Uh, we saw last week how um, for the, uh, the last week's uh, verses, uh, when it came to the Feast of Trumpets, that it was the very first day of that, of that seventh month. Today we're at the 10th day of that seventh month, which we understand it as Yom Kippur, is, is the name of is what the Jewish uh, people call this uh, very specific holiday, this very specific day to them. For us on our calendar, if you, even on your phones, if you looked up uh, September 18th, in two days from now, uh, you will see Yom Kippur on there, uh, on, your, on our modern day calendar. Uh, it was in this Time frame, this fall season for them, uh, it, it would fall in that middle September to the middle of October equivalent for us again. And so we see these three last feasts are in this fall season. The other, the first, uh, the second, third, and fourth feast that we saw was kind of in the springtime. The first one, of course, that we saw was the Sabbath, which happens throughout the entire year. And so as we're looking at this and and trying to see what God is trying to tell us, we're wanting to see what is the Day of Atonement all about. So I want to uh, uh, really paint two pictures for us this morning. I want us to see the clear picture of what it was for the nation of Israel. And so we're going to be going through our first point is going to be looking at just what it was for the nation of Israel. What was God saying to His people? And then we're going to see how did all those things come to pass? A great parallel between God's people in the Old Testament, His nation Israel, versus God's people today. The people who have been born again through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll be able to see this great parallel this morning. So the first thing as we're going to be looking this morning... Let's understand who is God's people. Now, I want to I want to say this because I want to try to bring us on this journey. I wish I was. I've said this before. I wish I was a great storyteller. I I really wish I was. But I'm going to do my best this morning to paint that picture and to be a good storyteller for us uh, today. The first thing, again, like I said, is God's people. All the way back to the beginning of Genesis, God had really just tapped a man on the shoulder. Genesis chapter 12. He he tells Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you with children and I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to be my people. Anyone that comes against you, I will be against them. Anyone uh, that is for you, I will be for them. God says, you are my special people. And so God's people, we need to understand, was the nation of Israel. Now, you remember that some things happened in the book of Genesis, the end of the book of Genesis to the beginning of, uh, beginning, not Revelation, but the beginning of Exodus, where God's people find, found themselves in a bit of a mess. They were in another country, they were in Egypt, and they were, in, they were slaves to the, to the nation of, of, of Egypt. And so as they're there in slavery, they're calling out to God. God, have you forgotten us? God, where are you? God, we are a people that are in bondage. And and real quick, just a little side note, that may be you this morning. And no better place to call out than to holy God. In anything that you are going through in your life, there's no better place and there's no better person, I should say, for, for you to call out to than God. We don't find ourselves always on these mountaintops. We find ourselves kind of in a mess, scrambling like I was this morning with, with these batteries going on, right? We find ourselves in life just kind of scrambling, not sure where we're, where we're, where we're going and where we're at. And we can know that we call out to God. And God, the Bible tells us in the book of Exodus that God heard the cries of his people. And God sends deliverance from out of that country so that they can start to go to the land that God had promised them years before, and so that was that journey through from the from the place of Egypt to Israel to Canaan, whatever we'll just refer to it as as, as Israel, what well, we understand today, modern Israel. And so they, God uses a man. God could have done it Himself, but God used a man, and that's how He wants to use us today, through uh, uh, as well, to do to do the things that God wants us to do. But that man, you may remember, as the man, his name was Moses. And God said, "Moses, lead my people from Egypt to the promised land, which is Israel." And so Moses, you remember those you remember hearing some of those stories. I hope we piece all these things together this morning. But Moses goes up on the mountain. And he is talking and having a conversation with Almighty God. And God is giving him some very clear, detailed instructions. Very, very clear, detailed instructions he's given to Moses there on that mountain. It was so detailed that he is there for 40 days and 40 nights there uh, uh, having this conversation with God. Now, I don't know the I don't know how it was done, to be honest with you. I just don't know. I don't know if he was chiseling it out in his stone tablets. Or if he was writing it down, I don't know how he was doing it. But Moses, that was a little joke, sorry. I know it, was, it was a lame one, but it was a joke. He was there getting these instructions from God. The Bible tells us, and you can write this down and look at it later, but uh, Exodus 24, 18. He says for 40 days and 40 nights that he is there on the mountain and he's speaking with God. And really he's listening to God and getting all these instructions. Now, he is writing down the Ten Commandments. He's also writing down something that's very important to what we're studying this morning, is that he is writing down, uh, God is saying, you know what, I want a place to be able to meet with my people. And so he tells Moses there on that mountain... Uh, and I'm going to tell you just so you'll know, and this is in Exodus 26. You don't have to turn there, but jot that down. But Exodus 26, he is giving Moses some instruction. He says, Moses, as you are leading my people, I want a place that I, my people can come in and meet with me. And so this place is called a tabernacle. You may hear me use it in, 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 the, in the form of saying temple. Or tabernacle, however you, is going to, I'm going to use it interchangeably this morning. But he says, I want this place to be able to meet with my people. In Exodus 25 through 27, you will see details. Very, very specific details about how what he wants in his house. In God's house where he's going to meet with his people, he tells Moses, he says, I want an ark of testimony, an ark of the covenant. I want this box built for me. He goes into more detail. He tells him, I want certain tables at places. I want lampstands uh, in certain places. I want altars. I want courtyards. I want all of these things. Now, if you read those details into account, if you go home today and you take account of all the things that God is saying, you would would maybe text me later and say, man, why did God have all of the like he is so specific on how the pre uh, of how his place of worship should be of his I mean just where this is going to be and this is going to be and Moses had to get it right he had to put all of these things build it like this and put it in those exact places now we think about for us as we if I were to go into your home this morning I would see what you like and also what you don't like I would see your taste. I would see uh, things that uh, that you like things in certain places and like certain decorations. And we're all like that in our own personality. And it shows us that God has the same thing. God loves what he loves and he wants it there. And but the thing is, with God, it's there for a reason and it has a purpose. And so what I love about it, just a little bit more detail, is God, I know that he doesn't, it's important for all these things, but above all things, God loves his creation, man, mankind, more than, he, more than any other creation that he has, as far as the birds and the trees and the air. The Bible tells us very clearly, like if, if, if he cares for a sparrow that falls and nobody else knows it, just how much more he cares for you and me. So I know he cares for us that much. So when you're going through life and you're just like, you know what? Nobody cares. Nobody really knows what's going on in my life. Does it really matter if I choose this direction or that direction? Is God really, truly concerned with those material things? I think if you were to read the detail of of Exodus 25 through 27, you will see that God cares in very Very specific detail about about his work, his building. So just how much more does he care for the little things that are going on in your life? And so he tells them all these instructions that I need to move on. And then he tells he tells his brother, he says, Moses, I want to make your brother Aaron. In Exodus 28, I want to make him my priest. I want to make him not only just the priest that's going to be before me, but there was going to be many priests, but there was going to be one high priest. And I want Aaron and I want his sons and his sons and those sons to be my priest to go before me for the, on behalf of the nation of Israel. Now, what I love about this story, and I don't have time to get into this, but I've got to mention it because it speaks so much volumes to me. When God is speaking this very word to Moses about, his, about Aaron, his brother, about Moses' brother Aaron, do you know what Aaron is doing at that particular time? Aaron is with the nation of Israel down in the valley or not in the mountain. And they're actually taking golden uh, ornaments and, and things of, of their jewelry and they're melting it down and they're making it into a golden calf. And they start to blasphemy, blasphemously worship this golden calf and saying, this is the one that has delivered us from Egypt. This is the one that has done all these great things for us. While Aaron is is disobeying God, God still saw not who Aaron was in that moment, but what Aaron really was going to be and could be in the Lord God. That's a lot of promise for us today, because when we're a mess. God still has promises for us. And God still has us in places that he wants to use us. He doesn't see us just where we are now. He also sees us where we're going to be. And God, I think about in the New Testament, uh, Simon Peter, as we refer to him when he's there and he's walking with Jesus, he's constantly always sticking his foot in his mouth versus the man when Jesus left and he ascended up into heaven. uh, uh, Peter is speaking so boldly and so profound. That so many people are saved and and receive the Lord Jesus Christ because of how bold and and what a man of God, Simon Peter, is at that point in time. God didn't just leave him where he was at. God continued to move him forward. And so Aaron, even though in his disobedience, God gives Moses some instruction that Aaron is to be my priest in Exodus 28. And then he goes into detail in Exodus 28 through 30 that this is the clothing that I want him to wear. I want you to make this clothing for him. This is what he's going to wear when he comes before me. This is going to be his pledge. This is what his responsibilities are going to be as my priest. Now, for you this morning, besides a couple of things that I added in, when it, but just when it comes to the details of what God is saying to Moses and what, God is going to, uh, what Moses is going to say to the children of Israel, you say, Garen, again, De Quincey, Louisiana, 2018, I I got one kid, two kids, up to five kids, or nobody else has more than five. Nobody's that crazy this morning. But anyway, uh, five kids, whatever the case may be, twins, you know, just uh, things going on in my life. She's just looking at me like I'm crazy. But anyway, all these different things. Say, Garen, but how does that apply to me today? How does that apply to my life? And what is God, how is God showing me these things? How, how does Leviticus 23 really affect me? And I hope we can see that this morning again as we continue to look. And when we see the day of atonement, the actual day of atonement, if you want to just turn in your Bibles just a little bit to, to Leviticus 16. It goes into great detail in Leviticus 16 of this day of atonement. When God is so detailed, He says, listen, I only want this to happen one time of year for you to go into, not only just into this place of worship, into the tabernacle, but in the tabernacle, guess what? There was one more extra place in the tabernacle. There was all the outer courts. There was the actual walls inside of it. And then there was all of these things set up in that tabernacle. But in the very back back part of the tabernacle, there was a little place kind of tucked away. And it was called, it wasn't just the holy place of the tabernacle itself, but it was the holy of holies. And what separated it from the rest of it was this big, Uh, I don't know how big it would be ginormous, I guess is the word I just used, but a huge veil that separated it from the rest of that building in that holy place. And it was the holy of holies. It said that you were only to enter into that holy place in that and that holy of holies one time of year. Now, Aaron's sons, uh, that's the reason if you read in verse one of chapter 16, it will tell you that his sons went in there. And they and this was after the death of his sons is because they went in there when they were not supposed to go into the Holy of Holies. And God takes his his word. God takes the things that he says very seriously. And so God's not out to get you. You understand that this morning? He's not out to get you. He's not out to zap you uh, this morning like he did to Aaron's two sons. But they were Uh, obviously disobedient to God, disregarded what God was saying. And because of those things, they did lose their life. And so he tells us that he says in in chapter 16, and I'm just going to paraphrase. You can go back and read it in detail if you want to, but that's where I'm at. God says, I'm going to meet with my priest, my high priest one time a year, and I will be in this place behind the veil He says there's an Ark of the Covenant. There was some very specific things that were inside of this Ark of the Covenant. And he says above that Ark of the Covenant, there is going to be some cherubim wings. There's going to be two angel wings that's going to be above this this box, this Ark. And he goes between that is called the mercy seat. And that is where I'm going to be. He goes, I'm going to be in a cloud above that mercy seat. And I am going to meet right there with that high priest. And so that high priest was to come in. And before he walked in, he was to be dressed exactly in detail as he was supposed to be dressed that God had instructed Moses to tell him to be dressed. And so actually the kids' paper this morning, if you were to look at it on your way out, one of the pictures is the priest dressed up. And from his head all the way down to his feet, he was completely dressed as God had told him. And he was dressed, but he also had to be clean. He had to be ceremonially clean in order to be able to walk into that place. It also tells us through history that that there was a rope tied around his waist. That if he was not clean, and if he didn't go in the right way, that they would have to be prepared to drag him out of that place because of how holy and how righteous it was. So if if it says for you to take a bath, And to clean up and wash your hands and not only do that, but also really importantly, be ceremonially clean. You would think that he would take that into great, uh, great consideration and do it the right way. And so he goes into that place. And and when he goes in, he has to have animals with him. Now, again, right now, it's not going to make any sense to us. I need to hurry up. okay, and I need to get to the point how it will make sense. But he goes in and he goes in uh, with this young bull and he sacrifices that young bull. And he brings it into God as a sin offering, not for the nation of Israel, but for himself. He comes in with a young bull. That young bull's blood is shed because of Aaron's sins. And he takes that blood and he sprinkles it there on the ark of God in that holy place. He also comes in with a ram. And he sacrifices that ram and he has the blood of that ram. And it is as a burnt offering to God. It is something that is sacrificially given for God. And he takes that blood and he sprinkles it there as well on that ark of, the, ark of, the, uh, that ark of testimony in the holy place. He also comes in now with Israel's sacrifice, sin sacrifice. Everybody with me still this morning, right? He comes in with Israel's sacrifice. And he has two, the Bible describes it as two young kid goats. And he comes in with these two goats, and they are going to be the offering for sin for the nation of Israel. And he also has a ram uh, that is going to be uh, killed, and its blood is going to be for the burnt offering that's going to be given over to God. And that blood will be sprinkled. Now let's go back to the two goats that came in. What he's going to do with the two goats when he comes in, before he kills them, he's going to, the Bible describes it as casting lots. And the way it's described it is as whatever lot fell on this one or that one, that was going to be what was going to be determined. That the casting lots was going to be the way it was going to be determined which one was going to be which. Okay, And so if the lot fell on this young goat, he was going, there was going to be one given over to the Lord. And there was going to be one given as a scapegoat. Everybody with me still this morning? One that's going to be given to the Lord. And one's going to be the scapegoat. The one that was given to the Lord, he would put his hands on, Aaron would put his hands on this young goat. And by him putting his hands on this young goat, that meant all the sins of Israel was placed on this goat. And it would be killed for the, on the behalf of the nation of Israel, and that would be the sin offering to God. And then the other one, he would place his hands on this goat. And he would take it and he would signify by all the sins of Israel will be placed on this goat. And guess what he would do with that When He would send it off into the wilderness. This, this goat symbolized the fact that somebody else took the place of the sin And because the other goat lost its life, he was able, this goat was able to be released. He was the scapegoat. And so we'll get to that and what that means in just a second. But to understand atonement, the Bible tells us atonement is to remove by paying a price. The reason that this goat was able to, as they refer to it as scapegoat, to get away is because one other one took its place. That's atonement. It says atonement to remove by paying a price. This one was able to go because one other one took its place. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. I do want you to turn and look at that passage of Scripture because it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement. Or the souls, souls. And so it tells us very clearly that the only way that God, I mean, because we can look at it and we're just being like, listen, God is just kind of really gross in a sense because he wants a blood sacrifice. But the Bible tells us in Leviticus 17, 11, it has to be for for something to be atoned. It has to be blood for blood. And that's what it tells us here in Leviticus 17, 11. And he tells us something that I want us to remember and understand, if and you don't have to turn there, but in Leviticus 23, it kept on saying, Afflict your souls. The nation of Israel, while the priests were to go, with the priests would go in there and do all of these things, if you were a part of the nation of Israel, the Bible says that you were to afflict your souls. It means that you had to take your sins serious. That you had to. Fast and pray and confess your sins to God. Even though a person was going on your behalf to to that holy place, you had to fast and pray and confess your sins to God. It was you afflicting your souls to understand how important this day was. Now, moving on. I want us to understand. And you thought that was a lot of scripture, but it wasn't. We have to move through this a lot faster. But God tells us in the New Testament that he's calling a new group of people. When Jesus came onto the earth and he came as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, he came as the Messiah. All of Israel all of the whole nation of Israel, years before Jesus ever came as a baby in a manger, they knew that they needed a person to come and be that one time atonement to take the place for the sins of Israel once and for all. And they knew this person was coming, they knew him as the Messiah. That's what they referred to him as. And so when Jesus came, they should have all understood and saw. There he is. It had been, it had been prophesied. It had been spoken about. When this one comes, he will come from this particular tribe, the tribe of Judah. He will come as a, from a virgin woman, which he did, from Mary. Uh, he will do this and he will do that. The way I describe it many times, Jude is my oldest son. If I send him out of the room and I describe to you to a T, this is what he's called. This is what he does. This is how he looks. And then I finally bring Jude back in and I say, here's my son. And you look at me like, who's that? And I ask Jude some questions and you see how he looks. And, and then the whole nation of Israel well, I should say the whole, at a large part of the nation of Israel, when Jesus walked in as the Messiah, they rejected Him. And so because of those things, God says, I'm offering it all. Because of the rejection of Israel, I'm offering myself not only to Israel, but to the rest of the world. And so as we look here, it tells us very clearly of who can be part of, of God's people today. Listen, Romans one16 sixteen. I'm going to turn very fast, and if it's too fast for you, just jot it down. You can read it later. But Romans one chapter chapter one verse sixteen says, Paul says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ." Listen carefully. He says, "Because for it is the power of God to salvation. God is the one that is bringing salvation for everyone who believes. You have to believe." In him, it's not just a, even this, the Bible tells us that even Satan's demons believe and they're emotionally, they emotionally uh, tremble at the sight of God and at the name spoken of even God. But it goes deeper than that, a belief that transforms you. And it tells you, it says, for the Jew first, it was offered to the Jew first and now also For the Greek, it's telling us that it's no longer just for the Jews, but it's also for the rest of the world. Romans 10 uh, verses 12 through 12 and 13 tells us for there is no distinction though, even though there's Jew and Greek, but we have the same Lord over us who is rich. To all who call upon him. God is not showing favoritism to a Jew, to a Gentile, or a Greek. Or He says there's no distinction now between the two. And that if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you're rich in him. It says for whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Shall be saved. And so, in order to now be part of God's family, it's not just being born into a specific group of people like Abraham and his family, but now it's to be born again into the, uh, to the family of God by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And another verse to go along with that is Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and I perfectly didn't highlight it because I wanted to turn with you, but Galatians chapter 3, 28 and 29 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, really the rest of the world. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Whoever believes is all part of the family of God, you're all one in Christ. And verse 29 says, and if you are Christ, I love that. If you are in Christ's possession... That's what we're talking about in the family of God today. It's not because of, again, being born in Abraham's family anymore, but it's now whoever believes in the son of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, now you're part of his possession. Then he says you're, you are Abraham's seed and you're heirs according to the promise. Now here where we go with these parallels. Before it was the nation of Israel, and now it's the people who are Christ. It's the people who are in the possession of Christ And the first thing is, let's talk about this tabernacle, this temple. And let's look at Acts chapter 7, verse 44. Acts chapter 7 and verse 44 tells us very clearly, it says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. This is what we were referring to back in the book of Leviticus. As he appointed, as God appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. He said, look, God had, I love how, The New Testament, all it does is complement and fulfill what the Old Testament had already stated. These two books are not contrary to each other. They just really make the Old Testament even shine even more because of how the New Testament displays it. And it tells us just as Moses did all of this in the Old Testament with the pattern that he had seen. But he tells us really clear. Let's go on down to verse 48. It says, however... The Most High, talking about Christ, does not dwell in temple made with hands. As the prophet said years before, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What what house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of uh, of my rest? Has my hand not made all of these things? God is telling us today, he goes, listen, I know I met with my people in that place, But he's telling telling us, he goes, I no longer dwell in temples, in places made with man's hands. In other words, you can't contain God in those places. He goes, and then he's going to tell us later that he's in the spirit of the ones who who are his people. He doesn't dwell in tabernacles and temples anymore. Let's look at Romans 8 verse 9. Romans 8, 9 tells us, so then... It says, excuse me, it says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. The people, this is the ones who are, who are part of God's people. He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of God, he is not his. Going back to Christ's possession. He says, you're not his if you cannot dwell in the spirit of God. But if you are his, then his spirit now lives inside of you. That's what made the tabernacle, the temple very special is that was a place that God was going to meet with his people. Now God is telling us his people, God's going to come and meet with you. He's going to abide inside of you in his people. So he no longer is in a place, even if this was our structure. Or if we went down the road to to TPC or if we went down the road to to, uh, United Pentecostal Church or we went down the road to First Baptist Church to Quincy and we went down to these places, it's not because of a building that God is going to dwell there. God is going to come into those places because of his people that are gathered there. Just like he can do in this room as he has done in this room. And then he tells us about the priest. He had his man Aaron as the priest years before to go on behalf of his people. Now he tells us he has a greater priest than Aaron. The book of Hebrews tells us this as you're turning in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 he tells us about another priest that he has for his people. And of course that priest... Is the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, I said. I said. Uh, I did it again. It's actually seven twenty-four, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, S- excuse me. But uh, Hebrews seven twenty-four. He tells us of a priest that he has. He says, "But he, talking about God, be, uh, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. As soon as Aaron died." His sons were no longer there. So what he went to the next heir and he was the one to go on behalf of the people. But guess what? It kept changing and kept changing year in and year out. But for Jesus, he's unchangeable. Also, it tells us in the book of Jeremiah 31, 31. He tells us uh, very clearly about uh, this priesthood talking about Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 31, 31. It tells us. I'm going to get there. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke through, I am the husband to them, says the Lord. And he says, But this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write it in in their minds and I will write it on their hearts And I will be their God and they shall be my people. God says, I'm going to be this this new covenant, this new priest for my people. He tells even in the book of Jeremiah, he told us that. Going back to Hebrews uh, chapter four and verse uh, 15, it tells us for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. See, we would like a priest like Aaron. Why? Because Aaron is faulty just like I am. You like the fact that you look at me and Jake, or you should. People are crazy when it comes to church people because they look at their pastor and they look at the worship leader and they look at this person and that person in the church. And they think these people are just in a bubble and live some kind of mystical life. My house is crazier than yours, I promise you. I know my family is, my, my extended family. They're absolutely crazier than yours. My family reunions are, are, are cutthroat, maybe just like yours are. Okay, My point is, you, we like the fact of dealing with somebody that has the same weaknesses as us. But when I pray for you, Sean, when I pray for you during the week, guess what? I'm also praying for my needs as well. And then I fail. Forgive me, but I fail to lift up Sean every time I need to lift him up. OK, when we have the high priest that we do in Jesus Christ, he doesn't slumber. He doesn't change. He's not having to meet his needs before he meets your needs. He is a perfect Priest, And that's why it tells us here in verse 15 that he, he sympathizes with us. He's gone through all the temptations that you and I have gone through. And you say, you know what? But he doesn't understand. Yes, he does. And he knows how to overcome those things. Because in all of those points he was tempted, yet he was without sin, the Bible tells us. And so as we, as we move on. It tells us uh, not only is he that priest there, but let's look at it in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 through 27. It also tells us, therefore, he is also able to save the uttermost, those who come to come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's always interceding for his people, meaning that. Whenever I fail to lift up my brother Sean in the Lord in prayer and just really lift him up in his time of need, Jesus is there praying on our behalf, praying for us. It goes back to those details, things that you don't even know in the corners of your life. Jesus is there praying for those things for you, for you to see and understand. Continuing on in verse, in verse uh, twenty seven 26, it says, For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy blameless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first in his own sins and then for the people. It says, for this he he did once for all when he offered up himself. He said, listen, when he died on the cross for our sins and when he offered himself, he did it one time. It was satisfied. Speaking of that, let's talk about atonement just one more time. Atonement is to remove by paying a price. In Hebrews 9, it tells us, and according to the law, going back to God's law, almost all things are purified with the blood. You remember that, right? We talked about that even in Leviticus 11. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And so for us, we don't go into a place where we we talk to our high priest and our high priest goes into this temple one time a year on our behalf to justify or or to satisfy God on our behalf. But God does have a way. God does have a plan for to remove sin from our lives to for him to accept that offering on our behalf. And it's through his son Jesus Christ, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he was the one that atoned for our sins. 9.22 tells us that. Also, 9, chapter 9, verse 25 through 28 tells us, it says, Not that we should offer, uh, should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood of another, With that innocent lamb or that innocent goat being slain or that or those things, he said. But he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away him sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus willingly laid down himself as a sacrifice for us. And it says, and it is appointed for men once to die. And after this, the judgment. And so for us, are we going to live our life doing our own thing and die without the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we going to die, the Bible says, for us to die of our life and and allow the Lord Jesus Christ to uh, cleanse us in his blood for us to be his child that we will die no more? And so that's what he's telling us here, that Jesus is the one that did all of this on our behalf. First, Timothy, chapter five. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5 tells us uh, in, in verse, 1 verse, uh, Timothy, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 5 and 6 uh, tells us, it says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus, the man Christ Jesus. And he's saying, listen, here's God in all of his perfection. And the only way we're going to have a relationship with God is for life to be lost, to blood, because of the sin that is there before God. And it says there is only one mediator between man and all of this sin and God and his perfection, and that man is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've got to be under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that he is the one that has atoned for our sin. Now, let's understand real quick in in Matt. I'm not going to turn there, but I want you to jot this. Oh, I am going to turn there. Matthew chapter 27. I want you to understand what happened for us to go from the Old Testament really to the New Testament and this new covenant to really take place. Jesus was there. He's dying on the cross in Matthew 27 and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he, the Bible, I love how the King James actually says this, that he gave up the ghost. He gave up his spirit and he allowed himself to die. And when that happened, the Bible tells us that some events started happening. In verse in Matthew 27:51 it says then behold the veil of the temple was torn and that very specific holy place the holiest place in all of the earth that that veil torn from the top to the bottom the earthquake quaked and the rocks were split god was signifying that his old testament time of his old covenant was done. And now it was his new covenant. That God was not going to step in. Jesus Himself was going to step in as that high priest. And so it tells us that there in Matthew twenty seven, fifty-one. it tells us about his throne in Hebrews uh, chapter four. And I know I'm I know I'm we're all over the place in Scripture, but Hebrews chapter four. In verse 16 says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's telling us our biggest need is to be found in Christ. Right? Our biggest need is to be found in Christ. And it's telling us that we can come to the throne of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something. Even Once you you understand that you are in Christ, that's the biggest issue. But when life still continues to kick you in the pants as a believer, the Bible is telling us that we can still come boldly to the throne of grace of God and find grace and find mercy because of the Lord Jesus Christ. It also tells us that when he looks at us in first Peter chapter two, first Peter chapter two and verse nine, he says, but now you are a chosen generation. He says that you are now a royal priesthood. If you think that I'm this kind of person on my own, or if I could just work hard enough or do certain things, it's not going to happen. The only way that this can be said about me, and I'm going to finish reading that verse, is because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, those that are in him, I call you a holy nation in verse nine. He says that you are his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says that you are his nation now, that you are a priesthood, that you don't have to go between someone else anymore that Jesus is there in your behalf and you can go straight to the Father because of Jesus. Because the veil was torn. That his new covenant was established. Now I've got to say this and we're done. That's my first closing time. The blood. He comes as that sin offering, right? Jesus comes as that sin offering. God has to be appeased for the sin of man. And so Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 says, Therefore, in all things he has made, he made, excuse me, he had to be made like his brethren. Jesus came in the, God sent his son in the form of man that he might be merciful and uh, may be a merciful and faithful high priest, talking about Jesus, in things pertaining to God to make propitiation. For the sins of the people, for the sins of his people, God is saying that his son, Jesus Christ, came as man and died for his brethren so that that he could be made the propitiation for their sins. In other words, he could be the appeasing uh, propitiation is talking about to appease a God. And we're talking about holy God here. And the only one that could appease God was the blood of his own darling son, Jesus Christ. And so the blood, that sin offering was placed on Jesus. 1 John, John chapter 2 and verse 2 tells us, And he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, and not for ours only, but also the whole world. He made it available for the whole world, but it's only going to be there applied for the ones that are found in him. Hebrews 9, 12 tells us, not with the blood of goats and calves. Now, it's just amazing to me. If you just look at all the parallels from the New Testament to Old Testament, it's just unbelievable. But with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus steps in that holy place, him this time, and offers to God a sin offering for those who are found in him. And that's what happened for us as he talked about. And the last thing in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in the last verse, verse 21, it says, last verse in this chapter, it says, for he made him God, let me, let me, let me exchange the prepositions for the actual now. For God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, to be sin for us, to be sin for Garin. To be sin for Sean, to be sin for Jake, to be sin for KK, to be sin for Lisa, and so on, and so on, and so on. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for you. And continuing on that verse, he says, that we, you and I, might become the righteousness of God in Him. How can, in the world, can me and you stand before a holy God and that word righteousness to say that we could actually go face-to-face with God in right standing with God? It's not because of who I am or what I've done. God, no. Ain't no way. But it's only because of Him. It's only because of what God did through His Son Jesus Christ for you and me that we could actually stand right before holy God. Now we spend a lot of time in the book of Hebrews and in this verse it sums up the whole thing. Hebrews chapter 10. Now I'm going to encourage you to turn there and we'll close on this verse. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11. It says, In the Old Testament... It says that every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down in the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, which is still happening for, he, for by one offering, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's you and I if you're a believer this morning. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us after he has said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds, I will write them down. Then he says, Their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, there is no remission of these. And it says there is no longer an offering for sin. Listen, he says, if you're found in him. Your sins that you had, which were placed on him, he was made sin for us. And when he was on the cross, my sin and your sin were placed on him. And it says now, if we we can go to God, we can be in right standings with God because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was done once and for all. It's settled if you're found in him. And he says, their sins I will remember no more. And, there, and it says that, and there's no remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. There's nothing else that we do in our own efforts, in our own, that we can even present to God. And so I hope from start to finish this morning that you really got the understanding Of what it was from the Old Testament with the priest and what God was trying to do. And then now what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And to just reel it back in one last time. First of all, have you ever been in a situation in your life where you have called out to God and say, God, not only do I believe you, I believe you. And when I say I believe and I call out to you, God, I'm surrendering my life to you. God, I'm calling out to you for salvation. When you do that, God is telling us that we're his, that we're 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 placed in his family and that all these things have now been applied to our lives. We're accepting this gift that God has laid out for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And if that's you this morning, that you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior, I pray today that you would do that. I pray that you would enter into this place of a relationship with God. And that is the first and most important thing this morning for us to examine and look at. Just let that sink in for a second. Has there ever been a time that I've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ in my life? There's many this morning in this room who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, who have a relationship with him. And God is the same God that He was when you cried out to Him in salvation. That you need a touch from Him this morning. You need direction from Him. You maybe have sins in your life that you're dealing with, and God has already forgiven you of all your sins. You need to agree with Him on the things that you are doing wrong, and you need to be in right standings with God. You need to get rid of those things that are in your life and confess them to God and be in a place that God is just speaking clearly to you in your life. There's questions that you have. There's direction that you're asking God for in your life. And as believers, God wants to show us. If God has already done this great great situation by bringing salvation to us and he cares about all the details of our life, you don't think that he's interested in the things that we're going through in our daily life? Yes, absolutely. Don't neglect him of those things. There's things in my relationship with my wife I fail to communicate and get us on the same page. And what it does, it hinders our relationship. And for God, he's wanting to hear from you. As David cried out, God, I feel alone. God, I feel like uh, you're not present with me. I feel like my enemies are all around me. They're fixing to overtake me. And as a believer, we can cry out to God and say, God, I feel this way. And allow God to speak to my heart about, God, how are you going to accomplish these things in my life for me to be able to get the victory and move on through these things? Don't live a defeated Christian life if you are a believer this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you and we praise you. Lord, as our our band comes, as we sing and respond to to you in this time of, of, of invitation or this response time, Lord God, I pray this morning that we would settle those two issues. That we would settle the first issue in our life this morning, Lord God, of how you want and desire a relationship with us so desperately, Lord. You want this from us because you have paid the sacrifice for us, Lord God. You were that scapegoat. You not only took our sins, Lord God, but you made a way for us to escape the penalty of sin because of what you did for us on the cross, Lord God. How you shed your blood for us. And I pray this morning, Lord God, that if... if maybe two, three, a handful this morning, Lord God, has never experienced what it is to have a relationship with you. Has never called out to you like we said earlier, Lord God, as far as your people today. To call out, Lord God, and say, I believe you, Lord God. I cry out to you for salvation. I ask you to come in my life and save me and be the Lord of my life. Be in control of my life. I give my life to you. Lord, you say if we do that, that you'll come in and receive us and live inside of us to be in control of our lives. And I pray for ones I know in this room, Lord God, who are struggling with this. And I pray you would speak clearly to their hearts this morning. I pray for Christians one last time, Lord God, as as they're just examining. We're examining our heart and seeing where we fail We're not perfect. We're not in this place of perfection, but we're being sanctified. We're being perfected. We're in this place out of struggle. And I pray, Lord God, just show us where we're falling short. Show us, Lord God, how we need to trust you, how we need to talk to you, confide in you, Lord, so hear from you. And I pray, Lord, we begin to do these things, Lord God, to really just walk as you want us to walk. We love you and we praise you, Lord God. I pray for this time of response. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to just really call out to God. Give this time over to Him during this minute to really just give it to Him. Just see what He's wanting to say in your life here.